I'm Shauna Ritter, and welcome to Profiles for WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Morris Manning. Morris is an award-winning poet and professor of creative writing at Indiana University. He was recently awarded a prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship, which will help sustain him while he is writing his next book of poetry. He is the author of four books, including Bucolics, Lawrence Booth's Book of Visions, and A Companion for Owls, which is written in the voice of Daniel Boone. His most recent book, The Common Man, was a finalist for the 2011 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. Morris is a native of Kentucky, where he has a farm. Morris, thank you for being here today on Profiles. My pleasure, Shauna. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on thank the Guggenheim you. and on being a finalist. Thank you very much. Um, tell me a little bit about your home place in eastern Kentucky. I grew up uh, not really in eastern Kentucky, but more south-central Kentucky in a small town called Danville. My parents' families, our extended family, is from eastern Kentucky, and I've felt most of my life somewhat divided between eastern Kentucky, which is its own place, and south-central Kentucky, which is uh, a different kind of place. Um, Tell me a little bit about some of the distinguishing factors. Uh, eastern Kentucky is more Appalachian in its heritage and, and identity, and the geography, of course, is a lot more rugged. Where I grew up is a region of the state called the Knobs, and it's good and hilly, which I love, but it's really the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains more than actually right in the thick of things. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just a, a unique geography, and I believe that the, the geography has formed and influenced the people and the ways of the people. And my family has been in Kentucky as long as European people have, have been there for over 200 years. And I grew up just being aware of that history and and immersed in family stories and, and um, a family presence in the place. Uh, as I was saying to someone recently, that's, that's what I write about. Mm-hmm. And it it was given to me. I didn't have to go looking for it. And and that's a, a wonderful advantage, I, f- I find. Well, place and that rootedness comes through so strongly in all four of your books. How did you come to poetry as being the form that you wanted to use to talk about it? That's kind of a, a question I, I sometimes have a hard time answering. It's it's a question I ask myself mm-hmm. um, regularly because I feel that my interest in language has been long-term. It has been something that I've known since I was a young child. And um, I was early on fascinated with stories, largely stories my grandparents and particularly my grandmothers and great-grandmothers told. And they were unique stories in that my family members were in the stories and my grandmothers were in them sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so it felt 
I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I can look back now and say there was an element of sitting beside my great-grandmother, hearing her tell a story about something that happened in 1904 or so. There was an element about that experience that was theatrical. Mm-hmm. I was an audience member um, as opposed to being a reader of a story. And I, I've realized in recent years that my so-called literary experience growing up was not really through books. I was not raised in a home with literature being something that, that we did as a family or experienced mm-hmm. as a family. And But I, I can now look back and realize I had a literary experience. It was an um, oral It was oral. Yes. That's right. That's right. And um, that is the connection to poetry for me because poetry historically is meant to be recited and or sung if you go back far enough. And so there's a, I think, the just the natural musical rhythmic quality of language, of a phrase of language, which is like a line of poetry that got drummed into me uh, as a youngster. And thank God I paid attention to it. <laughs> Can you talk to me a little bit about how your work has changed that in in your, especially I'm thinking of um, The Companion for Owls, it's um, very lyrical and lots of metaphor, lots of simile, you know, lots of what the way we think of contemporary poetry as compared to The Common Man, which is in couplets and really, really a long narrative about place and people. How did you shift? What brought that on for you? The Companion for Owls, uh, a Companion for Owls book is in the voice of Daniel Boone. And I wanted that to be the kind of book that it is, where the reader gets to experience Daniel Boone as a thinking, meditative, Mm -hmm. contemplative person, and a person aware of the history that he was making, the settlement of Kentucky, the first movement west Uh, after the Revolutionary War, and what that meant, the dawn of this country. So it's for me, it's a very, uh, of course, it's imaginative that Daniel Boone would would be that kind of person. The frontiersman of reflect, as a reflective thinker, we don't usually do that. Philosopher, more than a rough and tumble kind of character. And I think from the research I did for that book, I think my uh, interpretation of him is plausible, but I, I wanted that to be um, a book where the voice uh, of the protagonist is contemplative, wondering, here we are at the beginning of this place we call the United States, and we just fought the British to to make it so. We just ran the Indians out of Kentucky to make it so. Now what do we have? I wanted him to be that that kind of character, and and I wanted him to foresee uh, some of the things that would become problems for our country that we're still wrestling with, mm-hmm. how we use our natural resources, how we treat each other in different 
human communities and our economy, all of that. Um, I wanted my version of Daniel Boone to be that kind of seer figure. And in that case, the, the narrative is background. We know, presumably, um, the nuts and bolts of the story of um, how this country was established and how we Europeans started moving west. So I didn't have to tell the story. Um, with the common man, by that point I realized, because since it's two books later, I realized actually my primary interest as a writer is narrative. Uh, even though I'm drawn to the lyrical suspension of narrative and will always have an affinity for that, I feel that... Um, narrative or story more generally is natural to me. It comes naturally. Um, and with The Common Man, I, I felt that there were stories that I grew up knowing um, that were told to me or stories that I was part of in some way that um, were worthy of being told. And so... I, I wanted those, uh, the poems in The Common Man, to be a little hyperbolic. That Some of them clearly are. I wanted them to be kind of commonplace excitements, if that's a good, mm -hmm. if that's an accurate description. I wanted there to be a little um, tall tale uh, quality, but also something that, would keep the narrative grounded in in the kind of humility and and uh, integrity that seems natural to and part of the the spirit of the storytelling I grew up around. So I have to ask you: Is the axe story true? There's a poem that talks about as a six year old boy, the narrator kills a snake to save his sister from the snake, and says, "Well, most parents wouldn't." let them have an axe yes. to play with, but mine did, and thank goodness, right? Yeah, that's true. I was really curious mm -hmm. after reading that. Speaking of stories and narratives and capturing, um, I think, some of the rich history of Kentucky, the Carter family is has been, you know, absolutely historic in their rendition mm -hmm. of, of uh, Appalachian music. And one of the pieces you chose is Black Jack David. Could you talk a little bit about why you picked that specific song? Well, that is uh, a song that um, I guess the folklorists would describe that as a murder ballad. And it probably originates in Scotland or um, somewhere in the United Kingdom several hundred years ago. And the Carter family had heard it somewhere in southwestern Virginia, where they were from, and adapted it and varied it. And then at some point in the 20s or 30s, they recorded it. And it's um, a song I grew up hearing often and various versions of it. And it's a, it's a gothic romance. I mean, it's got everything you want uh, in, in a story, this... this uh, 
guy is uh, Black Jack Davy is seductive. He's he's a, a dangerous sort of guy, and and um, he woos a beautiful young woman, that sort of thing, and takes her away. And it's the sort of thing I imagine Edgar Allan Poe would have <laughs> loved. He mm-hmm. he he could well have heard it. But I, I just I love anything like that uh, that that has the resonance of time behind it. We've been listening to Black Jack Davy by the Carter family, and you are listening to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest is Morris Manning, and I'm your host, Shauna Ritter. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. I wanted to ask you about your third book, Bucolic, mm-hmm. which is um, written in one voice, mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm correct. Yes. And it's a conversation that um, someone working in the fields has presumably with the boss, right, which according to the pieces I've read, uh, the boss is God. Why did you choose the boss as the name? Calling uh, an employer boss is something I – was familiar with from growing up, um, particularly if you're one of the hired hands, you're you're baling hay or or, in my case, hanging tobacco and things like that, and you're with the guys doing the 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 hard work, and someone says, "Well, boss man said we better get up and uh, get back at it," that sort of thing. And I I don't know exactly. I felt that if you're a person taking care of the natural world as a farmer or a gardener might, in some ways it's easy to think you don't have a boss. Um, After all, it might be your 40 acres Mm -hmm. that you're planting and plowing and, and working. I think... It's hard to imagine um, working in that environment without acknowledging um, the creator of the natural world. And um, rather than have a dialogue with God, I thought, let's just have 
this guy who's sort of a shepherd farmer type, and um, he's doing his work, and um, he's doing it not just for his own gain. He's doing it because he's maintaining the natural world. He's a steward of the natural world. Let's let's give him a uh, a superior figure, mm-hmm. and let's just call that boss. And he has a lot of arguments with him all through. He, he has some some uh, debate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of being a steward of the natural world, you have been really active in uh, fighting mountaintop removal mining. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, mountaintop removal is a method of coal extraction. Back in the 70s, we would have called it strip mining. But this is actually a a kind of more industrial version of strip mining in which the literally the top of a mountain is blasted off with tons and tons of of dynamite and explosives and and the effect is the the not only is the top of the mountain lost, all of the trees are typically just plowed right off of it they're not even harvested um, and the mountain is turned inside out and the top which is made up of rock and soil is then plowed over hillsides and into stream valleys and and um, lower elevation to, to fill mm-hmm. and what was then um, deep underground is now exposed. Lots of times that includes uh, heavy elements like mercury and lead and arsenic, toxic, naturally occurring elements, but toxic when they are exposed and become airborne. Um, and then they get into the water systems. And the topsoil that was once on the surface is now underneath tons and tons of what's known as overburden. Um, The coal industry calls it overburden. Some of us call it formerly a mountain. And to date, over 500 mountain tops have been blasted off. Uh, About 1,400 miles of streams have been filled to the extent that they no longer flow. And that's just one dimension of the mm-hmm. environmental impact. The Another dimension of impact is cultural. If you destroy where people live, they're not going to live there anymore. And the culture that was native to that place will be um, diluted. And I, I'm greatly afraid of that. That is a process in Appalachia that has been going on for a hundred years, largely as the result of the coal industry. Once a, a region has is no longer viable in terms of coal production, the coal industry leaves, and the communities that became dependent on a coal-based economy don't have anything left, and so people move. And so Throughout the 20th century, particularly the last two-thirds of the 20th century, there was a great out-migration 
mm-hmm. from Appalachia. Around here, we've got huge pockets around Indianapolis, Cincinnati, some of the industrial cities in the Midwest have huge communities of people whose family roots go back to eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, and places like that because the coal industry pulled out and these people needed some place to to work. And they they came to the industrial cities in the Midwest to find work in factories and in more recent years, those jobs have have mm-hmm. uh, gone away. It's it's a real uh, systemic process. Um, As a writer, what do you see your role as being in terms of being an activist that can do something about both the physical and cultural destruction? I can tell you it's very discouraging at times because the coal industry is very well organized and they have a lot of money and they have um, persuasive political connections. And my uh, solace in all of that is that still doesn't make them right. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think the coal industry, and I, I don't believe it has been intentional. I don't think anyone has has sat down and said, well, let's just ruin this part of the country and let's ruin all the people who live there. I don't believe we live with that kind of malice, but that has been the effect, unfortunately. And the coal industry, just like the tobacco industry, for instance, is skillful at denying those kinds of effects and um, I hope that the facts will catch up Um, until that happens I don't expect that will happen in my lifetime but until that happens I think my job as a writer is to give voice to the place and the people of the place as best as I can and I know my voice is part of others. Um, and we have a little chorus going. And it is it is a comfort to know one is part of that chorus, that choir. Mm-hmm. And um, it's growing. Of course, when you, when you speak about a voice like that, I think of Wendell Berry. And you were a student of his. Yes, ma'am. Talk a little bit about... Well, I'm glad you brought him up because I was just going to say that um, about four or five years ago, I was at a gathering in Kentucky with other writers, and uh, Wendell was there and was sort of our spokesperson for the day. We'd been to several mountaintop removal sites sort of on a uh, tour, and we were working on sort of a statement um, voicing our opposition and and uh, planning strategies to meet with uh, members of the Kentucky legislature and that sort of thing. And it was late in the evening, and about twenty or thirty of us were sitting around a room, and and um, we were nearly despondent 
from having seen uh, just the physical destruction of mountaintop removal. It's unreal. It, you, you, you have to see it in person to, to get the scale of it. But it's, it is um, catastrophic. And Wendell realized we were about to <laughs> lose our composure. And he just stood up and he said, I've been doing this a long time. And one thing I've learned is you have to work with hope. Mm-hmm. And that was so fitting for the moment. And and it remains something that I keep in mind, that it's it's appropriate to work on behalf of others. It's appropriate to work on behalf of the natural world. But... It's also appropriate to understand that we might not live to see the outcome of our work. Therefore, we must work with hope that that outcome will occur and that it will be the one we have desired. Mm. And more recently, I've realized, heck, that is the way we should approach many things. Um, If you have children... Surely at some point you realize the work that I'm doing now as a parent um, will continue. The fruits of that work will Mm -hmm. continue after I'm gone. And hopefully that will be a part of my grandchildren's lives and that sort of thing. And um, Hopefully we were lucky enough to have jobs where we realize the work that I'm doing today isn't just for today that it 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 will reach its fruition maybe after I'm gone, and that might be the best kind of work we do. Speaking of the future, you're starting work or you're in the midst of work on a fifth book, if yes, I understand ma'am. it. It seems like your voice has changed again, and you were going to share a few poems from that. Sure. Do you want um, to say anything about them before you read them? Well, this book that I'm working on now is is uh, I'm pretty well decided on a title, and I'm going to call it The Gone and the Going Away. When I was finishing my last book, I was aware that the tales that I was trying to recall and piece together, um, I heard them and, and experienced them at a time in my life, and kind of painfully realized that that time is gone. And the old-timers that I heard stories from as a kid, those people are gone. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware that I I was born um, in 1966 at a a time when the old people that I knew were born in the 1800s and knew a... Kentucky that was agrarian and had been that way. And in their lifetime, Kentucky became a different kind of place, or rather parts of Kentucky became a different kind of place. Industry um, came along. And I know that I grew up knowing people from the pre-industrial world in Kentucky, and some of them were my relatives, and I know 
my family roots go back to that in Kentucky. And as I was finishing work on the common man, I realized that that world is gone. It is not coming back. And it won't do to be nostalgic for it or overly sentimentalize it. And so I thought, what what can I do next? Because I don't I don't want to bemoan the passing of the past. I must accept it. But at the same time, I don't want to endorse the present blindly. And so I thought I need to invent a kind of community, a kind of relationship to the natural world that um, we don't have now. But uh, we fantasize about, perhaps. We, we dream about in our better moments. And so I sort of recast a, a kind of agrarian world in my mind and uh, have tried to anchor it to my experience of Kentucky, of course. So okay. that's what these poems are about. And it, I think the, f- the first poem in the book is a little humorous and i've invented all these characters and one of one of these characters is a fellow named Roni Laswell who's a chicken keeper <laughs> <laughs> so this is just a little 30 word poem called the complaint against Roni Laswell's rooster attention mr roni laswell roni short for tyrone i hear the hour your rooster blows four is too too early. Another two would do. Go, speak to your rooster, Roni. And I, in in something like that, I I wanted to give myself a challenge of trying to write a poem that's only thirty words long. <laughs> Five words to the line, six lines, a little mathematical formula. I've written a whole bunch of these little ones now, and that's that's been a lot of fun to just play with the form uh, and and um, see what I can do within it. Here's an, here's another little short one called "The Very Notion of God as a Clingstone Peach." Beyond your heaven rasping fuzz. Say what else you are. Unsectioned pulp? Sweet galling juice? No root? No sleepy branch? About your inmost place, who pinched its old hillbilly face? And that one I just thought, what, what kind of poem could you come up with if you imagined that God was a peach? <laughs> just hanging in the heavens and the seed of a peach which is wrinkly looking I'm thinking back to the turnip seed yeah, you yeah. talk about a turnip seed mm-hmm. in the common man right mm-hmm. and imagining that holding so that seems to be running through sure yeah I, I like seeds <laughs> <laughs> as a farmer as, as someone with a farming yes should, yeah. sure they're necessary before you read some of those, let me let me ask you a couple of questions. You just talked about using a tight form mm-hmm. to write in, and um, the common man is also written in in 
tight form all the way through. It's written in mm-hmm. couplets and it's written in this very specific rhythm and meter. Um, why did you move into using tight forms and what does that do to you in terms of your writing process? It, it, for me, it provides um, a source of friction and resistance. And and I learned that um, working with um, Bucolics, my third book, in which I told myself, you can't use punctuation and you can't title the individual poems and you can't use the conjunction and. Random, very random parameters. But I, I, I thought, let's see what you can do with by limiting yourself. And um, I did not, in that book, I didn't want the materials of any individual poem to be cumbersome. I wanted them to be very simple, a, a field, a tree, and a horse, and then the horse's shadow, something like that. And using those basic materials, what can I do to configure them and arrange them so that they rub off each other and kind of fuel thought mm-hmm. and um, imagery you have an essay that you talk about, I think it's an essay, or maybe it was an interview, that you talk about physics, studying physics and mm-hmm. language. Yes. yes. And so you like to set yourself some kind of almost scientific equation. Did you study sciences? No, I was a very poor student of, <laughs> of sciences, although, I, not to sound too defensive about it, I've always felt that if I learned, if I had studied high school physics in a hands-on fashion... I would have learned it. I would have understood it. Uh, unfortunately, the way I learned it was just to memorize formulas and and uh, experience experience physics conceptually or in abstract terms. Mm-hmm. And if we had been building uh, things, if we had had a, a well to dig and a had to design a pump to get water out of the well, I would have understood physics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think uh, in my interest in physics in particular and mechanics and that sort of thing is parallel to my interest in language in that these are natural processes. A bird flies through uh, its natural inclination and its natural design. And that movement, however, can be explained in terms of physics and all the technical lingo we associate with physics. But the bird just does it out of instinct. Mm-hmm. I think language is that way, that that we speak, particularly we speak in idiom. We speak in pictures. We use metaphor when we're talking to um, our friend as we're walking down the sidewalk, you know. It's natural to us to use metaphor or simile in our ordinary everyday speech. Um, Even though as students of language or as professors of this stuff, we can talk about 
this in very technical, uh, almost clinical terms. So I, I find that our impulse, our natural inclination to use a simile when we're talking about uh, the soup that Granny so-and-so made, to me that's that just says that poetry is a is a is a natural naturally occurring thing and it's good to pay attention to it the way we ought to pay attention to a bird flying mm-hmm. you're listening to profiles on WFIU I'm your host Shauna Ritter and our guest is poet Morris Manning um, you were going to read a couple of more pieces sure. I think from is this from your new book as well this is a little bit longer poem called The Slate. Way back, the men had funny names like Tiny, who was anything but small, and Tiny's son was called Tiny Two, or Double T, and Tiny's wife, who was big and mean, was known as Honey, and everybody called Honey's sister Bertie, and Bertie, who couldn't whistle, much less talk, was beautiful but touched in the head. So Bertie lived with them way down in Fogtown Holler beside the green waters of Shoestring Branch, and only the land was rightly named, for it was foggy half the day down there, and the branch was skinny and whipped across the mossy roots and rocks like a snake. But by the time I came along, Tiny and Honey were already planted, and Bertie was bent over and old and tiny too was getting on and sleeping in the chicken coop with fourteen chickens and a rooster named Mr. Sump, and Sump was short for something. And tiny too just said he liked the company, and besides he had to guard the chickens against red-legged Johnny, who was a fox, because Mr. Sump was only good at making chickens, and tiny too would have winked about that sort of thing. And all of this I learned it young when I was just a scratch of a boy and I skipped down shoestring branch to Fogtown Holler and found old Tiny Two who told me where I was from and who my people were and how they named the world around them. Before you read your next poem, I need I, I meant to ask you this before, but I wanted to, this poem just reminded me of it in the first Peace in Common Man, the last couplet, I think it's the last couplet, says, I was born to tell the first I knew that I was in the story, too. Yes. And you talk about yourself hearing these stories. When did you become aware that these stories were your stories? You've sort of talked a little bit about that, but I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that sort of realization. Now, I think that must be perhaps the ancient inheritance of a storyteller is um, there was someone in the village or in the little hamlet for whom that was that was their task uh, was to, to tell the stories, even if they weren't directly part of the stories. Um, but it was a way for small communities to preserve their shared history and their shared values, that sort of thing. And I think writers, not all, but some writers, assume that kind of task 
for their communities, some on a larger scale than others. I would say someone like Shakespeare, if if it's not demeaning to him to call him a storyteller, I, I like to think of him as such, and I like to think he told the story of his people and his time. Mm-hmm. He told a broad story, and he knew the intimate details of those stories. And even if he wasn't directly part of them, uh, he realized that the, that the cup had passed to him to be the teller. And I can think of a lot of writers today, I don't want to put words in, in their mouths, but um, who, who are very much interested in, in being the, the person who tells the story of their people and their place and their time. And as I continue as a poet, I realize that is part of my calling and I'm obliged to, to answer yeah, I've heard some people, some poets especially, refer to it as bearing witness and and that feeling that that charge is, is what they're carried on to do. Yeah, yeah. That, that sounds reasonable. So share another story. Well, the last poem I read is all one sentence. I've been uh, incredibly liberal with semicolons, but <laughs> this next poem is also one sentence, and there's a, in this next book, I, as I imagine it at the moment, uh, I've got a number of poems that, for, for whatever reason, I want them to be one long, unspooling sentence. And this is another one like that called The Church Without a Bell. I've made a maze in God's amazement, a crude one up and down. In spring, it's green. In winter, brown. One path in view of another, but never the same, though one unbroken way. In truth, a jacktail vine sprung from a dream a boy once had, grown wild and curly. And in the middle is a church, without a cross, without a bell, but inside and singing, the latter man, who's telling the story against the story that's going on outside the maze. And the vine has built the church and the mind of the man inside it, whose story is not about new life, but coming back again and again to the church he made from his dream, which chimed with the time and rhymed with the scene of his dream in the time of its being. And in that time he lived and died and was born again and again and again. He couldn't get out of his dream because he loved it beyond the name of love, which doesn't have a name he could name. He couldn't leave the scene of his dream, the trees and the vines and the bird song singing him deeper into the deep, dark green of his mind. And everywhere else he looked, he knew he was deeper and couldn't get out and couldn't keep himself from going again and again back to the church without a bell he built in his dream. One long breath. So talk to me a little bit more about your your writing process. You you talked about setting yourself a problem. 
you talked about setting yourself up for friction and resistance. How do you come to write? Do you, do you set aside a time each day? Does do you, how do you, what's your working process like? Well, I wish I could say I had time in each day to sit down and do it, but I don't. And in recent years, realized I have to be okay with that. And I've I've just become comfortable um, with the idea that I will feel inspired and will take the time to sit down and and respond. Um, and so far, that has worked. It's also valuable to me to just let something sit in my head. Um, I, I'll have an idea for something, an image. I'll have a phrase. I'll have a line in my head, maybe two or three. And I've learned that it's it's pleasant and fruitful to just let that set and become what it's going to become and and be patient with it and let it let it come into its being in its own time uh in some ways i feel like uh, a hypocrite when i give assignments to my students to turn in a writing assignment next tuesday when in fact my own experience is if it's not ready on tuesday that's okay i'm going to wait <laughs> But fortunately, I'm I'm through with my classes, and and I can allow things to just happen in their in their own time. So you you can hold something and let it germinate. And... I try to, yes. I mean, I've got right now. I've got a number of poems that are in various stages of completion. Um, one in particular has been nagging me. I I really, it's a longer poem, and it's a it's kind of a complicated and involved sort of narrative and I've got about three pages going on it and it's probably getting on two months that I've been working on it and I haven't been able to sit down with it in a couple of weeks now and it's sitting in my head and I, I it's bugging me. When that's happening then that's when I know okay sometime in the next few days you need to sit down. Um, what's on your night table in regards to reading, that is? Uh, a diverse stack, I would say. Um, right now, I have Shakespeare's As You Like It, which I read last summer. I've read, I don't know how many times I've read the play, but I, I read it most recently last summer, and I've decided to read it again. And so that's, that is beside the bed right now. And as you may recall from that play, a fair portion of it happens in the woods. So I, I have an affinity for, for that play and for Shakespeare's ability to bring people going crazy into the woods to bring them back to their senses. Mm. I'm reading a, also a book of criticism about Shakespeare uh, and generally. Uh, that was originally published in the 40s. I'm sorry, I'm not going to remember the, the right. author's name. But um, that's generally the era of literary criticism that I appreciate most when the the critic's task was to explain literature and, and explain to the reader why we should appreciate this thing. 
I'm also reading the poetry of the much underappreciated uh, poet, British poet John Clare, who uh, wrote beginning the 1820s up until the end of his life in the 1860s, and he was uh, very much a rural figure and apparently had problems with mental illness and was um, kept in an asylum uh, for great lengths of time and still managed to write some beautiful, beautiful poetry. So I'm, I'm reading him as well. So a selection. What draws you to that, to John Clare specifically? Is it his language or his subject? Uh, he's sort of an underdog. I like underdogs. He's, he is not the kind of poet we teach in classes these days. Uh, I'm sure some professors have him on their reading list, but he, he's sort of a fringe character, um, underappreciated. And I I'm, find I'm drawn to a lot of writers uh, who are coming from the fringes and who are sort of populist in spirit. I won't say that they are the greatest poets, but there's something about that impulse, the sort of the ground up, grassroots mm-hmm. approach to literary endeavor that I identify with, for sure. Um, if you, as you teach, and and you talked about feeling like a hypocrite sometimes when you're assigning um, works to your students and giving them a due date, what do you think your own writing brings into your teaching? How do you, how do you balance both of those things? I think actually teaching and writing kind of go back and forth for me, uh, and I feel very lucky about that. If I'm trying to get my creative writing students to understand metaphor, for instance, which is actually a very complicated concept, mm-hmm. and, and there are pretty good metaphors and there are bad ones, and there are really sophisticated metaphors. And it's uh, appropriate as a teacher to show my students the range. Um, And in order to prepare for something like that, I have to really think about it myself. And as I see how uh, Coleridge, for instance, uses a particular metaphor, and how he knits it through a particular poem. I am first humbled by this acknowledging the skill it takes uh, to to manipulate language that way and also keep uh, a line of iambic pentameter going and keep the sense of a sentence going, etc. You know, it, it's... It's like juggling nine things at once um, and making it seem like you're only dealing with one. Mm-hmm. And all the time I, I I have to do that with my students, and, and it's such a stimulating thing for me to think about that I it whatever I try to bring my students re, is returned. So one uh, feeds the other. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um. We are going to um, listen to Lulu Walls by the Carter family as well. And why was that one of your other choices? Uh, I love the Carter family because it's, it is, we might say, among the simplest 
music in terms of its structure. It's just basic, simple rhyme, but it tells a story, and it's a story about frustrated passion, Lulu Walls, and it gives it some wit, and it's sort of good, clean, fun kind of music. Uh, And I think we still have room for that in our world. (laughs) It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Morris. Thank you. And um, I wish you all the best as you embark on your endeavor with your new book in the Guggenheim. Thank you. I've enjoyed our discussion. You've been listening to Profiles on WFIU. We've been speaking with poet uh, Morris Manning. This is Shauna Ritter for Profiles. Thanks so much for listening. program you just heard was recorded in May of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.